0: See you. Got you. Uh-huh. Welcome to the show. This is The Magician and the Fool podcast. My name is Dominic. I'm one of the co-hosts of the show. The other co-host is named Janus and he will be showing up soon. This is episode number 64. Today we speak to Mr. Ike Baker. Ike is an author, a content creator, a practicing ceremonialist and initiate of several lineages within the Western esoteric tradition including Freemasonry, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and the Martinist Order of America. And he also hosts the Arcanum YouTube channel and podcast, where he produces presentation-style videos on the occult and esoteric, and converses with some of the foremost practitioners, scholars, and authors in the fields of magic, esotericism, and the occult. Very similar to what we do. We would definitely recommend you check out his YouTube channel and podcast, and you can also check in with him at his website, IkeBaker.com. Ike is an extremely knowledgeable, charismatic, and articulate proponent of Western esotericism, and is just a fascinating guy to listen to and hang out with. Uh, It was a lot of fun. We are sure you're going to enjoy this. Before we jump into the episode we would like to say a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters. Um, The reality is the show does cost money to produce, as well as time, of course, and we really do count on our supporters to help keep things running. If the funds dry up, then it's likely that the show will eventually come to an end, which is inevitable someday anyway, but if you would like to help us, continue producing this kind of content, please feel free to go to our Patreon page and do what you can to help us out with a one-time donation or a continuing donation. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius. May any merit that we generate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. Welcome to the show. We are excited to have Mr. Ike Baker with us. He is an initiate of Freemasonry, the Golden Dawn. He's a podcaster, scholar, I would say, and, you know, all-around cool
1: guy. We're happy to have him here. We've got a lot to talk about. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I've been a fan for a, a number of years, so it's a real pleasure to be here with you guys.
2: Well, we're so pleased to have you. You're doing great work.
1: Thank you.
0: Yes, very great work. And, and and we're gonna definitely talk about your your offerings, your your podcast, your YouTube channel. You're working on some manuscripts, lots of stuff going on. But um for those of you the audience who don't know you, we like to always start, you know, at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this stuff, um, and, and we'll just go from there because there's a lot of topics we can touch on.
1: Sure. Um, so I uh it's a pretty strange story, actually. Uh I had studied comparative religions, things like uh, Hebrew mysticism as well. Uh, I had some early training when I was about 19 years old in, in Zazen, uh, Buddhism, meditation, the koans and all that stuff. And <clears throat> even pursued esoteric Taoist energy work. But, uh, you know, kind of a grab bag in the spirit of, of, of my, my times, really my generation, it was, it was spirituality a la buffet and probably around 2006, 2007 um, my aunt had a tenant and this tenant threw herself in front of a train. Turns out my aunt had to go and clear the apartment out. And she asked me and one of my friends at the time, if we'd help her, because apparently this lady was a hoarder. So there was a ton of stuff. And um, so we went over there and she had a section of the apartment, which was just filled with piles of books and like n- notebooks and stuff. I mean, the, the, when you open them, the the, the binding, uh, the spine cracked, crackled because they never, never been touched. You know, there was still cellophane on the journals. <laughs> so I saw this one book. Actually, it's it's still right here. It's still right on my bookshelf. Um, it was called The Oracle of, the, of Kabbalah by Richard Seidman. And I just looked at the cover and it had this really interesting kind of like Semitic, Perso Arabic almost, you know, kind of design to it. And I grabbed it and I said, Can I, this is going to be weird, but can I take this? And she said, Yeah, you know, I, the more, the less I have to like, you know, either throw in the trash or donate, the better. So, um, I read this book in one day walking around my neighborhood and I closed it. Still was not really, I I didn't have any greater depth of understanding of the Kabbalah from this particular book than I had from my previous very topical, superficial studies. But I, I, I kind of knew this was important. And so I, back when the internet had like yellow pages and white pages, um, I typed in long Island Kabbalah. Cause that's, that's originally where I'm from. And there was this study group and had this guy's name. Uh, well, it had his phone number and uh, and an email. So I, I reached out and I said, Hey, I'd love to be a part of this Kabbalah study group. And the message I got back was, we're not doing that anymore, but there's this other thing. And that other thing turned out to be the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. <laughs> and the the rest kind of unfolded from there. So I I, I fairly haplessly wandered into uh, the Western esoteric tradition. You know, it's been a number of years, almost a decade since my, my, my first initiation. I put off initiation for, for a while. Um, because I, I truly did not understand what people who claimed to be doing magic thought that they were doing. So, I, uh, but like many other things, I ended up, I feel like where I needed to be, no matter, like despite myself. So <clears throat> I underwent a very serious course of training with this particular um, temple that I became a part of. And it it was really, really great. And I feel like I had such an amazing advantage because of how little i knew about western occultism at the time i wasn't constantly attempting to project my expectations on the processes of um the outer order of the golden dawn which i I see a lot of people as a temple chief now i see a lot of people try and do that uh not not intentionally it's just it's a consequence of of just this overabundance of information constantly so um uh And, you know, since then, I've gotten involved in a number of other organizations that are of really high caliber people, high quality initiates. And so I I am somebody who's constantly learning. And my goal in all this is to just take what I can to the public dialogue, um, you know, where I guess the most action is happening, what forums and offering. Uh, the perspective of somebody who seriously, uh, I attempt as much as I can to rigorously research um, these various fields of study that comprise the Western esoteric traditions, but also to explain them in the light of insight um, that perhaps you know only a practitioner can can really have, you know, it's because there's so much that happens, at an interior level that is, is just not really discussed a lot of times. So that's what I'm hoping to do with the Arcanum channel and podcast and with all the manuscripts and things like that. And, um, you know, again, I appreciate you guys for, for giving me the opportunity to, you know, to, to sort of further amplify what I'm, what I'm trying to accomplish here.
2: Absolutely. And you know, the thing is in this tradition, that so many of us have so much of a passion for the way we move forward is by this incremental personal gradual effort it's kind of like in the independent sacramental tradition which you're also involved in we priests in the in the, in the you know in in the apostolic sacramental tradition that's independent that's outside of the romanists and the official orthodoxy we don't we don't tithe we don't have large communities paying for our for our vestments for 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 our churches for our bills we have jobs, we have families, we have homes, we have bills we have expenses, and still out of our pockets we're paying for our chalices, you know, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because that's the way it is in the in this tradition is there's this constant investment. And this investment comes straight from people who also are living their lives and paying their bills and have all of these other things. So there's this element of sacrifice and commitment that's really there. And when that sacrifice and commitment is there, to me, it's just such a beautiful thing because there's sincerity involved with it. There's this passion that you see in people like you where it's coming from their heart. It's coming from their soul. They're doing it because they want to do it.
1: Yeah. I, I agree with that entirely. I mean, I, I feel that, <laughs> you know, it's, as I'm sure, you know, you guys do as well. It's, it's quite a sacrifice, but on, on another, on a deeper level, I feel like I've tried to run from, <laughs> from, from this stuff before and it just doesn't work out at a certain point. It's like, um, I do, I really do feel like sometimes the path chooses you. Um, of course, we're always free to exercise our free will, but I don't think I, I don't think I couldn't do this. You know, I've, I wouldn't feel like a whole person.
2: That's true. And, you know, in traditional cultures, for instance, if a medicine person is going to be initiated and they try and run from the training, the spirits usually mess them up. You know, there'll be a sequence of misfortunes or they'll get in an accident or, things just won't be working out. And then they'll go to the medicine person and be like, why can't I get anything to work in my life? And they'll be like, the spirits want you to be initiated. You have to be initiated. You don't have a choice. You have to be on the path. And there is that element of it, really. And the thing I love about the Western mystery tradition, the authentic aspects of it, are that most of these people, these beautiful, beautiful people, are working in this very humble way, mostly anonymously, not looking to be public figures, not looking to be big shots. There's and that's a that's a wonderful thing. I mean when I watch your show, listen to your podcast, you're focused on the material and it's serious and it's scholarly. So it's beautiful because it's gonna take the people who are listening we're watching on a journey into that material, rather than a journey into your personality.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's you know that's that's a big part of it. Um, trying to serve, trying to serve the the traditions, and you know the big thing for me is that context is something that a lot of us are missing on the practical side. We're missing a tremendous amount of of historical context, and what that allows us to do. Is sort of interpolate, so we we get to like I was saying earlier, we get to project our own expectations of what this is going to be. Well, if a system is to be viable, then there has to be some sort of objective, repeatable um, sort of outcome. And you know, you 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 see it a lot where people will kind of branch off from the Golden Dawn, and uh, I, I speak of the Golden Dawn now just because it's the one that I'm the most familiar with. But there's a ton of different splinter organizations uh you know made by created by initiates who never got past the outer order well the interesting thing is like you do not know the golden dawn if you've not been in the inner order so um i mean the the outer order to a degree is a blind for the inner order um it's basically like sort of this outer court where it's testing you to see like are you, are you going to stick around you know and and are you going to allow the processes of of Uh, initiatic alchemy to break you down and then put yourself back together under the auspices of spirit. Um, So, you know, it's not really fleshed out because of how massive the span of time, how voluminous the contribution of literary work and thought that comprises the Western esoteric tradition. So most people don't even know that like when I'm talking about Plato, I'm talking about the Western esoteric tradition. They don't associate the two. You know, when you talk about Marsilio Ficino, you know, uh people like that, you know, philosophers and 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 artists, these these people made a tremendous contribution to thought. And this was their primary motivation. The very things we are attempting to do in orders like this and in processes like this, this was at the forefront of literate society, you know, for like most of the last. Twenty five hundred years at least. So, you know, to kind of, we have this terrible issue in our day and age. You know, it's a consequence of uh, post modernism, really. Uh, but we look back and we paint everything with the brush of our time. You know, and um you're what what happens there is you're you're cutting off your roots. You know, how could you? There's that thing, right? People who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it. Like, so you're kind of severing yourself from, uh, what this is supposed to be. And, um, I I really feel like there's a really great concerted effort, especially lately within academia. There's a tremendous amount of serious erudition about it, but then, okay, there's, there's kind of an imbalance on that side as well, because you're just, you're analyzing and dissecting, you know, the, the material forms, the acute tremont you know the physical body and completely devoid of the spirit the spirit of the issue and for anything to be a whole it has to be con, you know it has to be comprised of both of these things so i'm i'm attempting to you know my thing is that i've worked for many years on my my skills in articulation to be able to to um cultivate you know linguistic skills and and uh conceptual skills like analogy and things like that to attempt to convey these things to a to a larger audience so that they're not you know they're not so esoteric granted at a certain point the real secrets are not discursive you know it's they're they're gnostic if they're anything they're you you have to you partake of the higher mysteries via experience but um you know the scaffolding that we use to get there to build build to that experience is it is important and it is of consequence and so that's really what I'm I'm just trying to help give people the nuts and bolts for their scaffolding
0: nice nice and i would say your goal of of articulation is you're you're definitely doing a good job there cuz uh, you are able to articulate these ideas fairly clearly and that's super important when you're when you're trying to talk about such complex topics and what you had just said reminded me of a conversation that you had on one of your episodes. Actually, um, you were talking to Dr. Gregory Shaw. Uh, great episode, by the way. We've had uh, Mr. Shaw on our show a few times. I huge,
2: Miss, huge, huge Greg Shaw fans. Yeah, yeah. We love him. He's so great.
0: You, yeah, and you had a a great a great conversation with him. And he was telling you a story about how he was giving a talk, and I, I think there was maybe a Catholic priest in the audience. And the priest was basically like, wow, everything you just talked about is what I'm doing in in my mass. (laughs) So the connections are there. Um, It's a winding road that you really need to kind of study to kind of find all those different touch points. But, yeah, I mean, there's there's a pretty clear path back. Um, And then you go back, you know, beyond theurgy and you're looking at Egypt and, you know, it just keeps going. And so... uh, we still have access to, to to those kind of mysteries which is yeah which is great but you really got to look
1: yeah and to me it's 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 this sort of sequence it, look at a flower for instance right um a flowering plant i should say to be more specific um an ornamental so you get it in its seed form and then certain things have to happen in that seed form it's it's gotta you know it has to suffer it has to you know, crack open, be planted in fertile ground, reach up towards the light, feel the warmth, um, grow as, as, you know, a, um, a seedling for a little while. And then finally, when the time is right, it has to bloom, you know, and so people will look at different parts of that phase and say, well, you know, or different, I, I'm sorry, they'll look at different phases of that, that trajectory of growth and unfoldment and becoming right um because the flower is the seed's purpose um and they'll say well these things aren't connected and that that's that's mm-hmm. actually on both that's on both sides of the of the fence that's the practitioner modern a lot of modern practitioners and 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 certain academics not all of them but um but really to to understand the trajectory of western esotericism like you're saying from the the sort of dark recesses of history, the historical record, up through Egypt, up through you know Pythagorean uh, Mediterranean, um, further into the Platonic tradition and the Italic Hermetic tradition, all that stuff, all the way to the modern day, is to is really really to the Christ event for me um, is to not only know what it is, but to understand it's it's uh, telos it's not just not just its ontology but it's it's telos like what what is its purpose i was literally so,
2: just about to say that i was literally thinking about that exact word and i was about to say the purpose of the hermeneutic the purpose of a her, hermetic interpreter is to lead uh one to the telos absolutely and then you and took that, it right out of my mouth which just shows we're on the same consciousness
1: well, maybe you, maybe you put it in my head.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think Hermes put it in all of our heads. <laughs> there you go. Because, you know, you. we dedicate this podcast to Hermes. And um, you certainly are one of the children of Hermes. And and I didn't mean to interrupt you there. And I apologize for that. But I was just yeah. astonished that you were taking that. Because the talos is such an important idea. Yeah, it, absolutely. It's, it's so important because the talos the of the tree is the entire tree yeah and this and the seed exactly. contains that entire archetype of the tree that literally within the seed is is the archetypal telos of the entire tree and of tree-ness
1: yes and yet exactly. we
2: have that seed inside of us as the gnostic spinther, the the seed of light in the heart mm-hmm. except Absolutely. the roots grow
1: from above right right it's it and it's it's you know the roots grow from above, but there's also, there's also us, you know, reaching upward towards them. It, that's the most interesting thing about, about uh, you know, the consequence of duality is, is how, how we exercise free will, you know, and, and it, it reminds me of, you know, Michelangelo's famous painting on the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Um, And I've said this in other podcasts, but it's, it's just so good. You know, you see God, reaching down you know as if it's the most important thing in the world and there's a host of angels behind him and you know his hair's blowing in the wind and he's stretching forth leaning and adam's just kind of hanging out there he's just like you know got his limp hand just kind of like yeah these these grapes are cool though you know he's not he's not as interested so it's um it's it, that that's kind of also uh the the motive spirit behind this you know is um 'Cause a lot there's a lot of initiates who who have been able to show me the telos. But you know, I feel like I, I have an underlying I, I'm trying to reach back towards God as, as hard as I know God is reaching down towards us. You know, I'm trying. I'm only human. <laughs> but I wanna you know, I wanna really bridge I wanna I wanna bridge the aisle, so to speak, between like the more I want to say uh, theurgic or erudite practitioners, people that have contributed scholarly works and need a lot of that context in order to conduct what they do. And then I also want to, you know, have people on the show that are serious practitioners for, you know, multiple decades, but maybe are a little bit more intuitive in their practice. And again, it's just that I'm I'm attempting to harmonize, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and bring some kind of balance uh, to to something that I feel like could could benefit from from more of that in one one instance, but the 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 sort of the the lecture or, or presentation style videos that i I do um, they're laying the foundation for uh, western esotericism i have found that I have found that largely like one of the reasons why I went to Buddhism and Taoism first is because that was visible. It had high visibility when I was sort of spiritually coming of age. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went to that and I did find over the course of several years that, you know, it was the teachings had been convoluted and and there's all sorts of ego traps inherent to this dissociative idea of, of t- total transcendence of duality that is completely unpractical and actually in, inherently apathetic. Um, so not interested in that necessarily uh and then finally i stumble into the western esoteric tradition and it's it's not in great shape you know at at that point you know years ago it's um you didn't have as as much that was really available to contextualize what it was uh you know orders like the golden dawn are trying to do and uh so I, i try to take all the different sectors you know, and a lot of the people that I have on the podcast are people who inspired the actual work. You know, the the, the presentations that I gave. That's kind of how I thought yeah. to reach out. I thought to reach out to them, right? I was reading their books and and reading their their uh, essays and things like that. So uh, I just wanted to kind of rehab it in a way that was that made sense right? Like is kind is somewhat sequential. Again, this is such a massive swath of time. And it's such a huge, huge portion of human history that there's no way to go about it completely, you know, uh, along a chronological scope. But I I thought of, okay, when I first got involved in initiation, what was super important? And then beyond that, now that I'm at the other end, so to speak, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm not done with initiation. It's probably a lifetime's multiple lifetimes, sort of trajectory. But um, now that I'm a little further down the line, I look back and I think to myself, well, what would have been helpful? And so, uh, you know, it started out exploring ideas on magic and, you know, how to get started in ritual, uh, just the bare bones do's and don'ts. Um, And then from there, I started to develop the esoteric worldview and that's essentially uh you know i'm trying to build that foundation right now and then from there once there's like a place that you know me and my audience and and you know whoever else wants to participate eventually um once we're at a point where there's a really firm understanding about what this is and how everything works together for the most part then i i can start going off and just finding little niche areas of interest to discuss and and flesh it out even further you know but on until I'm going to treat it like a course, like a college course. Until we really lay the foundation, I'm not going to start talking about you know Inokiana and and things like that. It's just yeah, yeah. We got to figure out what this is first.
0: Well, so let's, not, just, let's say you, I was gonna, I was gonna. You got something, Janice? I had something. Yeah, but you can go if you want. I can wait. Okay, I was just gonna say let's go back for a second because you said something interesting that I'd like to focus in on. I'd like to hear more of your thoughts on this idea that you mentioned the transcendence of duality. And I think you wrote an article on it recently which was interesting um on your blog I th- I believe that's where I saw yeah. it. Yeah. Um Yeah, talk about this this idea of transcending duality. It sounds like you you're not you're not all for that concept.
1: Well, the, the, and I I'm I'm not because it's it's not it's not inherently theurgic and that's kind of the, the path that I take. So theurgy is more of an ascent beyond duality, but then like to come back, right. It's a, um and to, to, to work in the world. And there's this idea of obviously the Eastern idea of the Bodhisattva, which is, you know, it's interesting to me. I don't view the theurgist and the Bodhisattva as the same thing though, uh, because the thing that I find different and, and this could just be, and ignorance stemming from a lack of experience of what I would I guess I've I've never been involved in in any magical Eastern paths. and I know that that there are magical Eastern paths, you know, like whatever it is Zakhji Buddhism and uh, and that kind of stuff. But I've not done that, but I think that the diff the major difference between the Western path and the Eastern path because they there's a tremendous like an uncanny amount of consonance between the two. Uh, but where they differ is in this idea of transcendence. You know, the the Western theorist, you know, wants to be in the world, um, perhaps not of it, but wants to be in the world and spiritualize the world. And in order to do that, they utilize the constituent elements of the cosmos, right? We're working, the theory just works with the planets. The theory just works with the Zodiac. The theory just works with the elements. Um, that's, I mean, that's the basis of, of theurgy is, is the idea that, you know, is some people call it maybe geocentricism, but in reality, I find it to be geo referentiality. I am I have I have no other choice but to start in my physical body and the physical location uh where I find myself and and work my way upward and outward from there and <clears throat> using that uh, physical materia and having an understanding of of the wheelwork the hierarchies of creation is what the western esoteric tradition is all about and um you know a, a lot of that starts out as you know, morality, I would say, in in the Platonic tradition from which much of this stuff really stems, right? Because he he himself worked within an ultimately Pythagorean uh, context, is the idea of arete and eudaimonia, you know, um, excellence or virtue and well-being. And you have later in later Platonism, Neoplatonism, uh, kind of uh, capitulated um, by Iamblichus, uh, you know, the the ladder of virtue um, you have this sort of sevenfold ascent to that. I want to say experience of elevation or experience of ascent, but not complete transcendence. You come back down, it's, it's a circuit. Mm-hmm. And we, 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 what we do in, in alchemical transmutation is, you know, you're still working with stuff that was already there. You know, it's the, the, the gold was in the you know, prima materia. It was in, it was in the, the, um, the dross. And, and so for instance, a practical application of a kind of working with, uh, or working after an experience of elevation, because it's something that happens, you know, there's many circulations. It's not just, it's not just a one bing, bam, you're out and you're, you're good to go thing. It's a multiple, you experience this thing as many times as you can. And, uh, but one of the aspects would be like, okay, I am aware now of this sort of aspect of my persona that I was not aware of before. And I bring it under control and I am applying that, not, not casting it aside into the rubbish pile, but I am now applying that with knowledge, you know, where it can be useful in, in society where I, instead of having it go, let's another, you know, a really good example of this is maybe like, um, I want to say, I don't want to say anger, but I want to say passion, right? Passion. So you've got this kind of Eastern adept that is, is kind of uh, lukewarm to things. Let's just say this, this archetype, Um, whereas, you know, the goal i think of the theurgist is not to necessarily become completely dispassionate and therefore dissociative but rather to use that passion where it was previously unchecked to cultivate something beautiful in the world to apply it where it needs to go and where it can be useful and i think that the only way that we can do that is by um allowing ourselves in our in our physical bodies to be guided by um I, I, the way I have put it before is there are many names for this. You could call it the higher divine genius. You could call it the holy guardian angel, whatever you want to call it. But I like to refer to it as the aspect of our spiritual architecture, which transcends our ego Um, to, to make some sort of contact with that, right? Which is, that's the explicit goal of, of, of the inner order of the golden dawn is, is that you do that, that you attempt that you with, with everything you have, this is it you know um and you you don't stop until you you persevere with courage and determination until that is affected and then you become a vehicle for that in the world and you literally spiritualize matter so that to me is you know can i stop you there yeah please please. okay so i just want to say this is you know very important this
2: is core this is important this point you're making here and it is part and parcel of the entire trajectory of the Western mystery tradition, the the more I learn about this tradition and its its antecedent, even pre-Christian elements, if you go back into the archaic Hellenic and Italic tradition, the the genius is an extremely important part of this initiatic uh mystery. It, the the Egypto greco romanic tradition that was in the mediterranean and had centers in like at pompeii and naples and you know other places the Mm -hmm. genius is something genius being the root of the word genie for instance but it's something that is core not only in our individual life but then it's also extremely important in our family life Mm -hmm. and there's genie of 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 nations there's genie of of religious bodies because because these are spirits so we have our own genius and i think it's important for people to understand sometimes that this goes back to our skills as interpreters you have to help people understand that it's not just something like when we say holy guardian angel that is a abrahamic language right. talking about but really it is the same thing as the agathodaimon of right. of the greek or or of the of, of the of the uh, faustus genius of, of of a roman way of putting it it's the same thing it's this benevolent divine genius that really yeah. is us in our most pure form but yet it's also beyond us and not us and there's a mystery in the fact that this is us but also not us it's independent of us yet it's what we really are in in our most deep and true way it's not just a philosophical abstraction of ariti to aspire to or something like that it's not an intellectual idea of self-perfection although it inspires that motivation within us by Mm. its radiance in our lives it is an actual intelligence in. The in Jung's like it's like in Jung's more religious writings, he talks about the, the star that leads that leads the soul onward, and it's that star above our head, that shining radiant star, the blazing star above our head. That is our genius. And this is so important. I feel like so many younger esotericists, magicians, whatever you want to call it, mystics. If they would just start here, start here at this point before you do anything else, just start here. Start listening for that still small voice in the heart. Be aware of the fact that this being is more invested in you and your well-being and you achieving your highest potential than any other being in your matrix, really. Mm-hmm. That this being is, the, is, is emanated from the divine and set over you and you can establish a relationship with this being in an interaction with this being and by doing so in a mysterious way you come to, to true self-knowledge
1: i i that was so beautifully said uh, uh i i honestly i couldn't even put it better myself um can i quote you on my uh my my show <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> i uh that's that's exa- that's, a, it, that's fine. I'm long winded. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I think that that is the most important thing that I have learned from the Western esoteric tradition, and the you you do you see it everywhere. It's the Agatho Diamond. It's Socrates's Diamond, right? And it's also in the Picatrix, right? The Perso Arabics. They called it Perfect Nature, and they said perfect, uh, just as you're saying. They said it exists exterior to. And it exists. There's a there's a there's a species of that which exists within us. Right. It's the macrocosm and the microcosm. And even in the 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 later Neoplatonic tradition, Proclus in his commentaries specifically says that the diamond is both exterior and interior to us. So that whole diamond, you know, is it the holy garden angel? Is it inside? Is it outside? It's clarified right there if you're looking if now if you're one to just go based off of the textual stuff so like yes a thousand times yes and it's the what i think is really important to note about that experience is that it at least in my in my experience and and many of the the adepts of the uh, uh you know that are pursuing that work um not all of them but many of them i've heard experiences that that kind of you know corroborate my own because i was feeling totally insane my experience of my genius my higher divine genius has completely contradicted almost every single thing that i every preconceived notion that i had about what it meant to be a quote-unquote spiritual person um you know uh, because a lot of that It was called from movies, television, just these expectations that are that are mostly aesthetic in our culture. Right. Unfortunately, we have there are great things about consumerism, but there's also this kind of thing where it's like, well, I'm only going to go, you know, skin deep with anything because it's okay. I have that. The pin goes on my lapel and I go to the next thing. Um, And the reality is that when you begin to. First of all, you can't turn it off right? Like you were saying, Janus, to listen to this still small voice. Once you start hearing that, it's not, it's typically it's, you're going to hear that forever. And Um, there's a
2: thing too with that, because part of this work we're doing in in most of us who have done this work and who are actively engaged in it, because I don't think you ever stop this particular project. There are esoteric projects you do, and then you succeed, and then you move on to the next thing. But then there's things that you're literally doing for the rest of your life and this is one of those things. Right. Um you have to learn one in the in the earlier phases of it especially part of it is learning to distinguish between the automatic functioning of your habitual personality expressing itself through the analytical intellectual function of the rational mind cuz that will mimic what you're trying you'll be trying to communicate with your genius and your 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 the the rational mind will try and mimic that
0: right
2: you know because everyone has internal dialogue that is not the that is not the genius however when that part of yourself the mind uh, is the well I should say the phrenic mind in greek Right. Rather, rather than the the, the, the wise mind,
1: yeah. <laughs> when
2: when the mind is entrained to the angel, then the angel is able to speak through that part of you too. The angel can use your mind as a transductive receiver and speak to you. But first, your analytical function has to become adapted to the influence of the genius, and then the genius can communicate to you through that. But usually, I find that it speaks as an objective voice, which you can you learn to recognize. It goes from being still and small to being clear because you're attuning yourself to this influence and it is such a beautiful thing because this this being this angel this genius this diamond is a confessor for you too when you're crying when you're having a hard time when life is hurting you go to your genius and you talk to them and i have had miraculous experiences uh through confiding in my genius my genius knows me better than anyone else and i trust my genius more than any 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 other being just about except for of course the supreme you know and god and of course i completely trust thoth i completely trust hermes i love him with all of my heart but i would not say that my genius is separate from him 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 and uh the spirits that serve him you know because mm-hmm. spirits form the body of a god in a certain way as their emanations but That being you can trust your genius, you can confide in your genius. If you're having trouble understanding something in your life, you go to your genius. If you're trying to make an important decision, go to your genius. If you're trying to understand some weird dreams you had, go to your genius. Go lay down in your bed. Go sit in your chair. Have a moment of meditation. Silence your inner dialogue. Be quiet and listen. And an answer will come. And the more you do that, the more the darkness of your mind will become illuminated by the influence of this wonderful, wonderful thing that it just to me it is like having it's it, it's just evidence of providence to me, the yes. fact that we have yeah. this.
1: Yeah. It's 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 certainly evidence, yeah, of and of of some kind of omnibenevolence, which maybe we don't see in the demiurgic creator, but certainly this is the emissary of that which is omnibenevolent and, and above, you know, the, the Demiurgic influence. And that's why it's so important that we, we, we ascend Um, and it reaches down, we reach up, it reaches down. And as you were saying, um, this is, the, that's the whole point of traversing the middle pillar on the tree of life for anybody who's a Kabbalist, you know, it's because the sphere of Tifereth, right? Like you were saying, it's in the heart that is the chamber the bridal chamber where that's where that intelligence comes down that part of you that genius will meet you there and as you're saying you know for me it started out as a still small voice and and kind of mental pictures and as i grew in my my uh interaction with it it's now immediate you know if typically it's it's not going to it, it it communicates with me in several different ways right i mean there's synchronicity which is huge i'm constantly having conversations with my environment um i'm constantly interpreting my environment you know and it speaks back it speaks to me uh, it will initiate a conversation in in a very in a way that mimics very similarly like Anyone who's familiar working with the tarot, you know, there's kind of this egregore underneath it. it, it, The cards will speak to you once you have a relationship. Well, my my genius speaks to me through my surroundings as well as the voice. You know, um, uh, and it it it, it's I have found actually, uh, Janus, that in moments when I am really suffering, it's right there. It's right there when I when I ask with a heart full of sorrow and eyes full of tears why um i get an answer immediately and it, it really it's there's there, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me um and the thing is like uh, why not try and share you know the road there these techniques and and this ultimate trajectory that i mean everyone has been talking of. any everyone of consequence in western spiritual tra- tra- uh, traditions has been talking about for 2500 years you know so so that's uh, to me, it's uh, I, I. I'm trying to. You asked me earlier, um, Dom. What am I really trying? What trajectory? What tack am I taking with the channel? I'm trying to get us. I'm trying to get enough established to where I can kind of lead people in that direction. The direction mm-hmm. of of theurgy. The direction of the genius. Um, and it's not to say that anything else is invalid because it's all part of. It's you know it's all part of the all and yeah you know sometimes it's, it's the more egotistical things and it's the more maybe immediate financial or whatever, what have you. It, sometimes it's those things which lead us to the foot of the holy mountain, so to speak, you know, so you can't, I'm not trying to be de- derisive about it or or, uh-huh. or dismissive of those things, but I, I certainly feel like, you know, um, the, the theurgic path is, is one that it's, it's one you you should undertake before before long you know and i I would just want to make that for whoever is available who who is ready for that i want to make these things available and try and amplify their presence in the the overarching dialogue
0: sure and there are certainly things that can take you off that path like like you were saying the search for material gain and whatnot could be totally um you know uh, aligned with with a more pure goal but if you are uh, getting a little bit too attached to the passions, to the desires, I mean that that's leading in a different direction. Similar techniques, perhaps, um, so and that's where it can become difficult. You know, is this theurgy? Is this something else? Um, how much has has being a musician helped you tap into this uh, current or tap into these kind of lucid uh, ideas that you've been expressing?
1: Um, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure. I thought I was at one point, mm. but I realized that I look back and I, I thought for a while that my, um, well, I'll put it this way. I feel that people who, um, and I don't even think this is necessarily just true for people who make music. I think it's true for people who feel very deeply when they hear a piece of music as well. But I think musicians just typically spend more time you know, in that headspace, trying to craft something, uh, we, we need to get in touch with something interior as musicians, you know, something that's kind of moving through us. And You know, a lot of times when we try and plan things out, um, they don't have that, you know, they call it right. A spirit of genius, a spirit of inspiration. Um, they don't necessarily have that when you're, when you're sort of beating an idea to death. And so you, you get practice on kind of being still for a little while as jana said earlier and quieting the discursive mind right because it's sound at that point and then if anything the mental representation can be color you know it can be feeling it can be sort of uh vignettes from from memory so now you're activating all these these kind of like non-rational um or non-logical uh effects or 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 faculties, really. They're faculties in your psyche. And so you you know, when you activate those things, you kind of after a while you become aware that, like, oh, you know, it's it's really interesting that I have this this kind of this this circuit of sound, color, emotion, and no words at any point were involved, you know, but there was a definite, powerful experience there. Mm-hmm. I no words were harmed in the filming of this podcast. <laughs> right. Yeah maybe maybe not we're at, we're not at the end yet but uh i, I think <laughs> i think that that helps kind of develop things like intuition and non-discursive uh you know psychic processes but or at least encourage them mm-hmm. but i think also um i i read the platonic dialogues really really young and i didn't understand them my dad just kind of gifted them to me uh One of the first books I could read when I was of age to sort of, you know, I'm not reading the cat in the hat anymore, you know, or what the stinky cheese, man, I'm not reading those books anymore. Uh, I'm, I jumped right into five great dialogues by Plato and, um, I didn't understand them mystically back then, but they certainly influenced my ability at an early age to, to think abstractly. And, and that's something I developed, um, very quietly intimately with myself in in my interior it happened over the course of my late teenage years and my throughout my 20s i engaged in this almost socratic dialogue with myself um and and really pushed myself to think abstractly and that also really really helps so um i can't i don't think i can just pin it all on music but Mm. um I think those two things together really help me grasp this stuff. And then, of course, you reach that point where, like, yeah, okay, I understand this stuff, but now, how the hell do I talk about it? And that's yeah. where the real the real challenge begins. You know. So I wanna I wanna jump in. You you're it's so funny that
2: you said something a few a, a subject ago. It was so connected to something I was just reading and reflecting on earlier in the day. So if you don't mind, uh, I, I'll just read you a quick quote. Oh yeah, sure. This is from the, I feel, underappreciated, brilliant Master Oswald Wirth in his writing upon the Sixth Arcanum of the Tarot. So Arcanus 6 as a whole illustrates the mechanism of the voluntary act of the sentient person portrayed by the lover, who is the man of desire of San Martin. This personality receives the impressions of the physical world thanks to his sensitivity, which is the green color of his costume, and then he reacts, the red color, compulsion. Now, as it is not a matter of unconscious or automatic acts called reflex, there is deliberation and choice before the releasing of the action is decided upon. And then a little forward here. The wisdom is not of the initiate is not that of the initiated who identify life with fruitful action, useful Herculean work to live for its own sake is not their ideal for they feel that they are artists and consider that life is given to them with the view of creating a work of art. As it is a question of the great work of humanity to which only the workers of the spirit can devote themselves, they must have learned how to will and how to love. The lover is in this respect the initiate whose apprenticeship is completed. If, by crossing his arms, he puts himself in the rank of the good shepherd known to the knights of the rosy cross, the fact is that he tries to forget himself. He does not allow himself to realize his own personal benefit, but desires only that of others. It is this realization of this mortal beauty, moral beauty which corresponds to the sixth sephira. Tifereth, whose emblem is solomon's seal formed by two entwined triangles in this we must see an allusion to the marriage of the human soul water and the divine spirit fire it is the star of the macrocosm the sign of supreme magical power acquired by the individual who with complete self-abnegation puts himself in the service of the whole to love to the point of existing only for others that is the objective of the lover and i hear this message in what you're talking about just through this whole conversation i hear this aspiration and this motivation in what you're discussing it's very it really is very heart centered and tifereth centered and i feel like all of the subjects we're discussing in this discussion are really centered upon
1: that passage i just read absolutely Absolutely. I mean, it's, I feel like it doesn't really matter how many physical initiations you undergo and how many ceremonies are put on for you. I think that the the real, you know, those things can be powerful catalysts and they're, they're certainly, they're certainly powerful as, as magnets, right? Because you're, you're, you're stating a very powerful intention when you go, you go through a ritual or even when you, when you put one on for somebody in, in sincerity, um but the real initiation happens in your heart uh and <clears throat> i think that that is the synchronon of of the adept of any tradition you know um it's it, the 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 activation of the heart now you know it's that doesn't mean that you don't become angry anymore or you don't become upset or mad right because i mean it, it's passions are in the heart too um you know that fire is there but it's just the redirection of that fire towards the most beneficial end. Um, and and typically it comes with a self-abnegation to say, okay, I don't know how to act in this situation, guide me, guide me, send my energies where they need to go. Um, it's a tremendous amount of trust. And um, but the thing is, you know, when you when you're when you're aligned with that heart-centered intention, right. You don't want to gratify yourself in this situation. You know, you just want to serve however, however that's going to work out. I I have found in my own subjective experience that it always works out for the best when you just get out of the way. <laughs> you know. So, and, and yeah, you're being guided by like, like I said earlier, I truly believe that the genius is the emissary of the omni benevolent, you know, transcendent God. I, I really do. And I, I see in, in the genius a very very powerful analogy for, for Christ um and that's you know that's why unabashedly i am a christian
2: well that gets into something very significant here um you know in this internet age of the tabloidification of gnosticism people don't understand that it's a le- it was a le- it was and continues to be a legitimate tradition and that the primitive christians who used the term gnostikoi did not use it as a social marker or identifier, but as an indicator that they had attained uh, the experience of of direct contact with the divine. It was it wasn't a it wasn't a uh, social signifier. It was a it was an indication of the triumph the triumph over the lower self had been attained. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because in this tradition there's deeper elaborations upon the the more simple aspects of christian tradition for instance the idea of the demiurge most people who are interested in gnosticism don't understand that there are several demiurges mm. um, even within the Christian Gnostic tradition, the first demiurge is deposed from his throne and is cast to the earth or Hades. And a second demiurge, who is in harmony with heaven, with the pleroma, is put in his place. And that demiurge establishes a system of benevolent angelic influences that are placed over the planetary chains and hierarchies and souls. And the genius is part of what of this system the secondary system of justice established in the world uh, which has been established by the second demiurge who operates directly uh, under the command of sophia and those angels in the valentinian tradition the genius the benevolent geniuses are said to be conceived by the union of christ and sophia in the bridal chamber Mm. so this is all part of the tradition but
1: yeah and uh, you see it you see it even you see it even in it, this is so to me reminiscent of the Lurianic Kabbalah, right which is um it, it's it, we're talking now about the first and second creations you know the first the first creation kind of being deposed, not being able to contain the light and therefore being right the shards are cast down literally like the, right they they occupy a space contiguous to and below the material. Uh, sphere, like kind of.
2: That's so insightful. That's such a great point.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's the, and and where does where does really Kabbalah come from? It comes from the Hellenized Judaism of you know the Alexandrian period, which is where we find all of the the you know the Valentinian basilidian uh the the Nagamadi codices all that stuff is in alexandria it was found in alexandria all those teachers were there so it's a very special thing happening in that place and time and it's all one tradition it's all extremely consonant we're not it's there's when you really look at it, it, it there's not as much variety you know, as, as we think there is, it's everybody's trying to say the, the same thing through, you know, I guess the language of their own inherent culture. There's, Thank you. you know, the,
2: Thank you for that. That is definitely <laughs> our position as well. It's an inevitable conclusion
1: after you study these things in enough depth. Right, exactly. And that's also something I'm kind of on the sly trying to, to push in there because the thing is, you, you know, I, I, I respect a lot of, I, I totally respect um the nuance that goes into these scholarly erudition um and this idea that like but the issue is and i'll never i will never i'm not a crowley fan i'm just not uh anybody who knows who's watched my channel for more than five minutes knows that about me so it's (laughs) well you
2: you're 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 in the same boat with us
1: uh, and we'll leave it at that (laughs) but but i'll say that Uh, he has one incredible insight in book four. And again, I think it's because his thoughts for that book were organized for him. He dictated it and somebody else organized the the content. Um, I think that was a big reason why that happens to be his most lucid writing. He basically talks about the rational mind being, you know, corresponded to the suit of daggers or swords in the tarot and how it's a very fitting emblem because the mind the, the rational mind wants to analyze, right? And the archaic meaning of analysis is to take apart, to cut up. We think you hear analysis in a modern uh, context. And you're thinking, oh, I'll crunch the numbers. I'll think on it. But uh, the, like the, the actual meaning of analysis is to take apart. And that's what the rational mind does. And the whole thing is that you're never going to come to a holistic picture of things by cutting everything into ever smaller pieces. Thank you very much, Aristotle, for that, you know, the first philosophical error. But um it's, it, it, the issue is that so much of that, that kind of, uh, pervasive nominalism has taken over and really obscured this what we're talking about the 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 that inevitable conclusion by saying, well, this is slightly different and this has different cultural underpinnings and well, this was happening in a different time. It's like, yeah, but you're not reading this the the spirit of the letter here and that's the whole reason they wrote any of this shit (laughs) so it's it's you know it's not just this anthropological cultural phenomenon you know it's there's some there's something very 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 central and and of like urgent imminent importance to to human beings that people have been trying to pull down out of you know, noetic realms and, and concretize here to leave for other people. And, and, you know, things happen, time passes, uh, things get destroyed, texts get burnt, language becomes archaic, completely obscure. So this is, this is really the work of the modern scholar practitioner is to, to resurrect the teachings with insight. Absolutely. And
2: you put it very eloquently there, like 62nd Assassin said, truth out the blue, and it still ain't nothing new. (laughs) <laughs> and it's true, you know, like it, the truth remains the same. Truth is not mutable, truth is not changeable. The truth is the truth is the truth. And when you're dealing with people who are, were and are having interior mystical experiences of direct revelation, a perception of the inner realm, their experiences, there will be an inner consistency. You know, we need to dismiss the nonsense of relativity and right. and also historically Absolutely. it's easy to establish certain things right like the 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 septuagint that the the old testament was translated into greek that is when Tamura Notaricon uh, Gematria mm-hmm. were intru- yes. int- introduced to Hellenized Jews because those are originally Greek Pythagorean techniques in Isosaphia. it's yes. part of Pythagorean mysticism which was an aspect of Neoplatonism and Gnosticism if you read the early I don't even like using the term Gnosticism because there are certain channels out there that really tabloidify it these days but when i say gnosticism what i really mean is pre-nicene primitive christianity because it was in in, in, an integral aspect of the original and true tradition thus we see clement of alexandria one of the most subtle and mystical Christian fathers, referring to himself as a, as a Gnostic. He says that right. he even gives you, in in his writings, he talks about what a Gnostic is. And it's essentially centered upon a love for truth and spiritual devotion. But anyway, in Alexandria, all of these things were brought into the Hebrew tradition. And, and this is why you see contemporaneous writings from uh, Jews in other areas criticizing the Hellenized Jews of this of this area at the time because they were they were saying these Jews are bringing all these things that aren't Jewish into the Jewish tradition, you know. So so we can easily establish that many of these things we find in later Kabbalah came from the Pythagoreanism, yeah. Neoplatonism, uh, um, Gnosticism, yeah. And that well, is actually useful because then we can identify, okay, well, what was original to their, to their tradition? And that's the Merkava. Right.
1: Yes, exactly. And even that was based on like an ascent through seven planetary spheres where like, you, you know, they, right. They, they, that they met quote unquote hostile angels. You know, they had to like, they had to like beat the the boss of the planet to like move forward, Um, <laughs> which, which is, it's just, it's just unbelievable, but it's, um, you know, and and, and that's the whole thing. Like, so this stuff really has a Hellenic basis, all of it. Um, yes. uh, Cause the thing is like, okay, I understand the idea behind oral traditions, right? I get it. Right. Um, I get, I, I, the mouth of mouth to ear definitely exists, but the fact of the matter is that a lot of the stuff, particularly like the Sefer Yetzirah and things like that, we're basing it off of the oral traditions, tradition of dating it. We can't, you know, we don't know. We don't really know how, how far back that things goes back. There's no historical or scholarly consensus. And that's what those people are typically good at. Um, now, the Zohar, obviously, I believe it's the 1300s, Moses uh, de Leon. So what we do have extant, not, you know, in the culture and in the historical rec- records, the the Pythagorean stuff outdates it by like, you know, like a thousand years at least. So Precisely. but Precisely. And then the interesting thing is, of course, as um, I believe Don was saying earlier, well, the historical attestations, right, Porphyry's and Iamblichus's uh, various lives that they wrote, right? you know, Vita Pythagore and and, uh, the life of Plotinus, particularly like the best and brightest of ancient Greece, you know, Thales, Solon, uh, Plato, Pythagoras, they're all attested to have undergone initiation in egypt and yes uh, specifically working with the priest craft right because the priest craft weren't that's not like clergy that we think of today they were doing everything there were physician priests there were uh you know uh botanist priests there were metallurgist priests there were scribe priests so to 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 become educated you had to work with priests Mm -hmm. And, and 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 the thing is that what may what do all the priests have in common? They're priests. So there's an overarching <laughs> spiritual discipline, uh, a perspective lens, or I would say, uh, an insight that is prerequisite to being a member of the priestly class. And that is a lover of wisdom, a lover of knowledge, right? To me, the Egyptian priest class, as far as we can go back, those those were the first philosophers. The Greeks learned how to do philosophy from them. And the greatest
2: philosophers among the Greeks directly, Said this, they 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 directly acknowledged this. They they were constantly acknowledging that Egypt was was the place where all wisdom came from at the time, and that that's also why I think that we need to divest ourselves from these pernicious Old Testament myths of this evil these evil Egyptians. Yeah, uh, you know why would I believe? What, when, when I'm reading the slander, if I know someone hates someone else, I'm not going to listen to what they, it's kind of like reading the church fathers to get accounts of the Gnostics. It's a very exactly. similar thing, really, <laughs> because why would you listen to that? Why would you believe that? No, when every other culture was saying Egypt is heaven on earth, Egypt is the source of all knowledge, Egypt is the most
1: hygienic country. Yeah I mean, and even even among even among the the hebraic settlements if you look at the the archaeological evidence they had their own quarters they had their own foods you know they weren't they weren't like you know uh like house slaves to these people you know, they had it was it almost seemed as if it almost seems as if it was like kind of a mutually beneficial relationship like okay we offer you the auspices of our empire and protection and food and and that kind of thing and you guys you know we need help doing work um so being in egypt and spending some time there and and traveling around with an egyptologist you know it made it made a lot of valid points about it you know um particularly that and some people will disagree with this but but i found this to be kind of kind of apropos he said you know one of the things that astounds people about Egyptian work in particular is its degree of perfection at such a quote unquote early point in time on the historical record. And, you know, he points out, he's like, do you really believe, especially people back then who, you know, um, didn't have necessarily the same kind of aversion to the after or to death because of some things like the ath- afterlife um, were just part and parcel of their worldview they didn't even have to you know think Hmm. do i believe in that um do you really think that he asked me um that it slaves could do could accomplish work to this degree of of magnitude of perfection so that that was kind of that was Mm -hmm. one of their their defenses the other one was you know talking about the the, the archaeological evidence that like they, you know, they had their own communities and things like that. You don't normally find like these kind of um, miniature autonomous societies within societies, you know, in, if we're talking about slaves. So that those were two interesting points that I that I've been chewing on. Also, and those are
2: excellent, excellent points. And another point we need to take into account is this, when we look at the historical timeline, when we look at the events of history. The Egyptians they didn't go out looking for slaves. What usually happened is that they had to deal with others in either a military sense or people invading them, and then they would conquer them and enslave them because they were the superior culture. This is what happened with the Hyksos. This is what happened with these Habiru tribes who were living in the desert. They were trying, they they had a habit of trying to invade Egypt, and then the Egyptians mm. would have no other choice. But to enslave them. I mean, they were running into Egypt trying to take over Egypt and then they became enslaved. And then they wrote books about how the e- Egyptians were abusing them.
1: Right. I mean,
2: I well, I'm I mean, not...
0: let's let's not like totally gloss over Egypt as like these these perfect angelic, you know, soci utopian society. I mean, they were definitely a warlike society that had its own I mean, I mean they were certainly infused with this spirituality, but often a lot of these cultures were. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. They were they were vying right. for resources and stuff, so there there was a lot of just mundane war stuff going on too. So I, I definitely don't want to get too much into the romantic romanticization. Can't say that right now of Egypt in that way. Um, but it is yeah. interesting too. Just to really quickly dovetail on what you guys had mentioned earlier is that Egypt had had so informed the Hellenic world. And then in mm-hmm. turn later, the Hellenic world then was informing Egypt. Right. But sorry, well, continue. And
2: I don't want to seem unreasonable. I mean, but the thing is war was a reality as it is today, but of that sure. time, especially it was a reality of the ancient worlds.
1: So yeah, and you also have to, you also have to remember we're talking about, you know, millennia here. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, right. uh, we're talking about different generations of rulers, different epochs, you know, um, you know, for instance, Hatshepsut, right? Uh, the one of one of the female pharaohs of Egypt. She took the she took upon her the title pharaoh, and she wore the the false beard of of the pharaohs. And you know, her reign was typified by um, peace. And what she was a really really good businesswoman. Um, she you know at her mortuary temple there are uh frescoes and 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 designs uh, uh, still they're still it's incredible that they're visible um after a, such a massive uh, amount of time but you can see like to commemorate uh her her reign there's there's uh drawings of or, or paintings of of her delivering grain and uh in to uh, a foreign nation and and so she bro- brokering all these interesting deals and really bringing it to uh, a time of prosperity through um you know the sort of business-like sort of commerce politics whereas her son uh was i'm forgetting his name right now but uh he was considered to be so not the, the egyptians uh revere her for bringing to egypt a period of prosperity that was kind of had been lacking in egypt but she also gave them and they're equally as happy about this as one of the greatest i think i think i'm pretty sure it was Hatshepsut, but i'm pretty sure she she bore uh one of the greatest warriors in egypt and so they were super proud of that because as as janice is saying you know war war was a reality for them they were surrounded by uh by people who um that's just right more money more problems <laughs> type of thing mm-hmm. prosperity comes prosperity comes and then you have to go to war and defend these things and but but i do i do agree that i definitely do agree that you know the overarching sentiments of uh of each dynastic period are subject to change yeah. you know they definitely i mean totally. look at the look at the amarna period right akhenaten and just forcing everybody moving the capital forcing everybody to to you know have this really really strict monotheistic uh focus of worship that to them was that to them at the time was a catastrophe absolutely so yeah, yeah it's 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 totally imbued with the potential for for things to you know for things to change but i i do agree that we have to question we do have to question narratives because you find that a lot you know it's they do say like Winners write the history books. So mm-hmm. we're, we're finding more and more each day and context is important and dialogue like this is important.
0: Yeah, humans are going to human.
1: Yeah. yeah,
2: exactly. And the thing, too, <laughs> is we have like we for for the the West has been held in the grip of a specific narrative for a very long time. And it's informed so much of our academic research, so much also of the Western mystery tradition. Uh, and this narrative, and I, you know, full disclosure, I, I, you know, I am a clergyman within an Abrahamic tradition. Uh-huh. So I'm saying this from within an Abrahamic tradition and within a tradition that operates in at least a partially Abrahamic c- context. And I'm saying that this narrative should be questioned. I right. think it's, it's held a stranglehold because of the cultural hegemony it, it's had on, on. Our understanding of history for far too long and so for far too long even hundreds of years of scholarship things like what we're discussing with the Egyptian and Hellenic perspective have been sidelined and neglected if they counter if they contradict or question this narrative and it's time for us to uproot the elements of this narrative that are fallacious in favor of the truth the truth should be our objective in everything we should always be striving for the truth and looking for what is actually what we can actually establish as factual. So it's not yeah, necessarily I, I, that I'm coming from a bias. It's come, uh, My bias is the truth. My bias is, look, if you, <laughs> Yes. if you look at Egyptian temple theurgy, sacramental theurgy, Egyptian sacramental theurgy, and you are familiar with the structure of the liturgy, if you're familiar with the structure of the traditional, either Western or Eastern liturgy, um, Eastern especially in the its iteration in what used to be called Constantinople um you know in Byzantium or in the or in the older the, the more I would say argue more true forms of the Western liturgy. And then you develop an understanding of Egyptian sacramental Temple theurgy, you will see it will become unquestionable that the central rite of the Christian Mysteries must originate in Egyptian temple practice and not only that if we look at Ari Schwaler de Lubis we can also see a correlation so close as now i know that correlation doesn't imply causation but when we when we see the way that christian that that christian churches were designed from the beginning of the movement and then we understand the principles that egyptian temples were designed upon there is no way to not see a correlation that seems to suggest an inheritance of a body of knowledge
1: yeah, yeah and 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 it's so interesting to me too because all how, all those all those coptic gnostic as you are saying really a better term for it is is sort of um pre-nicene Christian a uh, primitive christianity all that stuff was found like right outside of alexandria and, and that was the the seedbed the seeding ground for Neoplatonism, Gnosticism, Hermetism, all this stuff was happening. So to me, it's almost like, I don't know if you're familiar with I don't know if you're familiar with, um with with music theory. I might get a little esoteric, but the basic premise of like uh there's this thing called like uh um overtones, um basically it's just harmonics. You have two notes that that are sounded simultaneously. And the interaction of those two notes Essentially creates a third note that you can hear, and I, I feel in some way that, and, and this is this is completely unsubstantiated, uh maybe not completely, but it's it's definitely more of a feeling. I'm not ready to go on record and say I can point to the documents and yada yada yada. But my feeling is that Neoplatonism and and Hermetism, basically the Platonic tradition, I want to say truly, uh, whether it's Neoplatonism, Middle Platonism, whatever it is, but when the Platonic tradition and hermetism began to encounter one another. I believe that Christianity was that third thing that sounded, that 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 third note that was necessarily um, created. And that's not to it's not to imply that uh, that I believe in you know more of a symbolic, strictly symbolic interpretation of the Christ event itself. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that that's the case, but I, I definitely believe that a lot of those spiritual traditions capitulated into what, what you're talking about right now, this received body of knowledge that is well established. Because, yeah, I mean, it, absolutely, I've I've walked into temples that are east-facing in Egypt with an altar You know, like, and they, they tell you, you know, the Egyptologists know exactly they process in from the West, they face East. Uh, It's a, it's, it's it's a very similar thing. You know, it's it's the same thing in the Catholic church. I'm Catholic, you know, like I grew up Catholic. And so it's, I'm just sitting there scratching my head. Like, yeah, you know, we're kind of doing magic all the time too.
2: Yeah, well, if, and as a priest, you walk into one of these temples, and you're like, oh, I could just walk right up and do mass right now at that at the altar. Everything's set up just right. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> you just got to keep you got to keep uh, uh, some consecrated hosts in your pocket. That's Absolutely,
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and <laughs> there's a, a Byzantine in the Byzantine liturgy. They would do this stational liturgy where they would they would have sometimes they'd have a deacon um, moving around the city. Uh, move the the center church would consecrate the hosts, and then the deacon would go to the other churches, and then they would also do this thing where they would literally process in a circular way around the entire city with the hosts. It's so it's just so solar. They'd move in this clockwise way yep. through the streets of the city from each church to each church. I mean, if that's not met for those. People who understand ceremonial magic, there's just no way to deny the solar the 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 nature of the solar theurgy that's being practiced in these contexts. And I would also say, you know, you were saying, "Oh, I'm not denying the symbolical nature of Christ." Well, there's a a early scientific around the time of Darwin. There's a I think maybe Haeckel, but I'm I don't want to I don't want to say I might be wrong about that. But there's a term phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny. And so, if you think about that, right, like the genesis of the—you can see it in the genesis of a baby in in a, in a mother's womb, and the way that the genesis of the baby in the mother's womb. It, it directly parallels the the genesis of a chicken and an, and an alligator and a and you know maybe a bear up into a certain period the, the the fetuses all look the same and in turn the genesis of these fetuses uh recapitulate the genesis of life on earth from uh one-celled organisms to to tadpole like organism to to uh, amphibious to to a, to a land dwelling organism, you see that process recapitulated in the development of the child within the womb. In the same way, the the event of of the Christos and his sacramental descent into matter and the mm. subsequent uh, explosion of, and release of the life forces throughout the cosmos at the crucifixion. Uh, this is in the spiritual life of the mystic this entire process of the descent of the light and then the then the emanation of the light is recapitulated phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny you know we have to be we have to conceive god within ourselves and give birth to god as i think meister eckhart said we have to conceive god and give birth to god within ourselves or or the or the incarnation and descent of god has no meaning for us we have to participate in that by becoming pure and receptive mirrors uh the unclouded pure receptive mirrors of the transcendental light of the flowing nature of the
1: godhead right yeah and and you even see you even see that kind of uh trajectory as you were saying this this growth towards um you know uh uh, this this certain um release of life energy and and obviously in the in the crucifixion and, and right the resurrection to the true life uh, the conquering of death you, you you see it in in western initiatic orders even so you go through typically an outer order uh, and i'm talking now about a certain branch of of the western esoteric tradition you know the basically the gd and derivative orders you undergo a series of initiations which recapitulate you know uh hebraic rites uh samothracian rites, uh egyptian rites, and but <laughs> the main event is christianity you know and the thing is people go through the outer order and they have this hodgepodge this kind of s- sampling of all these different cultural really cool um rituals yeah. and that come with their own things called an oracles and it's very interesting and then it, but if they don't penetrate the veil you know, and they don't enter into cabalistically the sanctum Sanctorum, right. The the chamber of Tifereth. You don't understand that. Like this entire thing was a recapitulation of the spiritual history of humanity. And that the the capstone was the Christian mysteries. You didn't get there. So now it's like, we're out here in the woods doing other stuff. um, When in reality, uh, you know, interpolations as Dom had said earlier, are taking us off. The 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 right uh, the specific path this was specifically supposed to lead somewhere and now we're we're elsewhere as you said earlier Don but you know we got distracted.
2: Well, it also proves, for instance, that Crowley was uh, a lower level initiate, if initiated at all, because of his attitude toward Christ being "quote unquote" old Aeon. Not only is that just context; it's it's not only inaccurate because it's reductive. But it's also inaccurate contextually. It just shows that he didn't even understand initiation itself, to say something like that. And he didn't understand the nature of Christ. This is why in the early Christian, because there's no old aeon, the Christians were the ones, the primitive Christians were the ones talking about the procession of the aeons. That's where the whole right. concept came from and yeah. was popularized was in early mystical Christianity. You know, (laughs) and even if you look at the writings of Mani, he talks about the fact that, and this comes from Zoroastrianism with the doctrine of the Seosean, the the, the incarnate, the Savior who incarnates uh, once at the beginning of time, once midway through history, and once at the end of history, but it's the same Savior. And you find that in the uh, Semitic tradition with Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve, being really in in the mystical Gnostic tradition, he's the first incarnation of Christ. Where I'm going with this is um, that to the primitive Christians, you had Hellenic Christians, you had Jewish Christians, you had Chaldean Christians, you had Egyptian Christians. Each of these people, they understood the Christian mysteries through their culture and in their cultural way because this movement originally was not limited. It it was understood, like you're saying, that this, this event, was was literally an event horizon it was a transformative juncture in time and space and philip k dick right. said the same thing yeah and so for each one of these cultures it still had the supreme importance jewish christians mm-hmm. christ is still christ Hellenic christians christ is still christ
1: yeah and it's it's it, it, you know not to dwell too long on Crowley um but it's interest it's it's interesting because here's the thing right so Christ also says you know pick up your cross and follow me in my way you're not worthy of me you know and and so that call to sacrifice and self-abnegation and creating a silent space at an interior level in the heart what we were talking about you know towards the beginning of this conversation That's the, you know, the giving birth to God. That's, that's the creating a space where, you know, the, the, the Christic force, um, that is available to you, you know, uh, is able to incarnate and, um, and use you and in the world. And, and the thing is, you don't really see that in Crowley's writings. You don't, he was not able, I do believe he tried, but I don't think he was able to sacrifice himself fully and you have to sacrifice yourself fully right because that's but you you get you end up being you know um reinvested that's but to the newer life you're born again to the newer life but you you have life and it seems like this really terrifying thing like i got to give myself up you know but at the end of at the end of the day like you're still here right it's just you're gold now (laughs) and that is one of the criticisms of mysticism by
2: Ignorant so-called western left-hand path practitioners is that oh well mysticism means you know you lose yourself and you're just dissolving into the i've heard this argument ad nauseum so much over the past 20 years and it just betrays a complete lack of understanding of what you're describing it is not a loss of self it is not you don't you don't who would want to just be erased Right. Why would you spend all this time meditating or praying or practicing theurgy just so you could walk into the big eraser and just be erased and stop existing and just right. merge into some
1: ocean and be nothing? That doesn't that's not the way this works. Well, well that's that's why I kind of go back again to some of the things we were talking about about this kind of like western version of eastern transcendence. That's what a lot of that stuff gets I think um mistakenly uh, contextualized as so, you get a lot of Western people that don't have the cultural nuance necessary to really be able to to parse and and deeply profoundly understand Eastern traditions. And uh, so, what happens is there's this prolonged period of um, uh, personality erasure. That happens over time and you see this really strange dissociation take over um so and i I mean i was on that path for a long time um and it it starts to slowly erase you and whereas that's not the path of 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 the westerner i truly don't believe that's the eastern path either i think that's we have accidentally sort of um taken it that way you know it's i that's why i'm like okay it's fine. Continue your yoga, but also come here. Check this stuff out. Check out the Hellenistic stuff. Read the theurgic manuals. This is where it's really at for us. Um and and so that's that's, you know, to to sum that up, uh, i I agree with you wholeheartedly here. you're 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 speaking my my language, and uh, i'm I'm giving you a big hug from across the internet right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say I'd say personality erasure is is okay as long as what's being erased are all of the negative traits all the negative attachments all the negative you know things that are are dragging us down so that's i feel like a lot of people hold on to these negative traits about themselves uh as if that's that's what defines them like you know i've been through all this stuff and that's who i am and to a degree it is but they hold on to this baggage as if it's important to define who they are and I think that's where the problem is potentially with with not wanting to let go of, of the self. It's, it may not be letting go of the entire self, but you should be letting go of aspects of yourself um, for sure. And that right. kind of plays into the whole morality, ethics, virtue thing. Um, you don't right. have to hold on to those things, you know, and it is scary because you think, well, that's what makes me, me. Well, not really. Dom,
2: I'm so glad you said that because I was on the tip of my tongue and I was, I was trying to think for a minute of how to put the way you put it's better than I could have. And I think that it's important to understand, for instance, in the Hindu tradition, and which passed into the Buddhist tradition, the seeds of karma are in the storehouse of the mind. Okay, so the Mm -hmm. mind, and Oswald Worth likens this to um, two cards, the hermit and the empress, actually, for different reasons. But the seeds of karmas are in the mind, so the habi- the habitual personality is like this process really that occurs from an accumulation of our experiences and our decisions and our actions, and so people tend to identify with this habitual personality instead of being expressive of the indwelling the the light of the indwelling consciousness and i I agree, I think that it is important to eliminate the imperfections of the personality and refine the rough ashlar, so to speak, refine the stone, you know, chip away at the stone. And I think that the to go back to what we were talking about before, that is why the Daimon, the genius, the holy guardian angel is so helpful too. You know, because you yeah. can go, please help me to see in my blind spots, help me to understand, you know, please right. intercede with, you can say with God or with, with whatever, you know, say you worship Hermes or Thoth, please ask Thoth to correct this imperfection in my character or to give me strength where there is weakness so that I can transcend this, you know, and things like that. I think that the guardian angel is very helpful in this process because they can also turn your attention to parts of yourself that you avoid seeing because it hurts to see where we're ugly and it hurts to see where we're broken and it hurts to see where we're weak and it hurts to see where, where we hurt others. And if we can just, if we can just eliminate those influences from our personality, which according to a archaic worldview or sometimes uh, originate in kakodaimones in, in, mm-hmm. in, in yes. lower daimons, you know, possession is not always something that is uh, this overt dramatic, horror movie style thing Um, possession can occur on very subtle levels and the possession usually occurs through the irrational passions.
1: Yes. And, and, and going back to kind of what we were saying earlier, (laughs) you know, that, that voice, that interior voice, it sounds like you. Yep. When the, uh, when, when the Kako Diamond, you know, the, the, the guide of bad counsel speaks to you, it sounds, it sounds like you, there is, there is a, a large, there's a huge amount of deception um and that's that's why these things are so insidious you know so pernicious um as you're saying i mean i i i personally i mean i possession is a very real thing for me and there 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 are different degrees of it there are different levels of it that are occurring you know there's and it's the same way when you talk to somebody that may be like okay um uh somebody is um considers themselves uh like uh, overshadowed by by a specific spirit or something like that you know i'm i and there are some people who consider them themselves hosts to certain deities or certain essences or powers and they do that in the spirit of of benevolence well on on the, the the different levels or, or species of uh allowing something in it that also translates to the negative stuff it's just often you know uh, we, we don't consciously invite the negative stuff in it just we do it by i mean society has created a a vast playground of opportunities for that to happen uh, uh, nicely they've, put they've, nicely they, put they, i mean they've created it a likelihood actually but mm-hmm. but um but in reality we don't you know it's it's not typical i guess you know i've not been on the the goetic Reddit forums lately, because uh, I was about to say it's not likely people are asking uh, evil things to to um, to kind of come into them, but I'm sure it's, they I've, are. I've, it's it's getting more and more. Absolutely, common.
2: do. <laughs> they do it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's put it this way: um, I'm not going to name any names, but there was a well known author that people. Just fond over sycophants, um, who wrote on these subjects. And he was an intelligent person and a good writer, and really did make some valuable contributions in terms of his ideas. Uh, this person, in his private life, was not clean, and you know he he was he was poor, he was sick, he was addicted to speed, he was not a role model, and he's writing books about basically. Worshipping demons and giving these complex philosophical justifications for them, and complex and 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 these justifications for why, since this is an archaic tradition, you should dispense with the exorcistic aspects of dealing with goetic spirits and things like that. And now there's all kinds of people doing this work, where they go, "Oh, well, that's just a Christian overlay." And it's like, do you understand that prior to Christianity? The theurgists who were dealing with these spirits were also using similar techniques just with with a different cultural overlay. And this guy and people memorialize him like he was a saint. And these are the things that unfortunately mm. contribute to disorder in society.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it's always amazing to me that people don't see like basically grimoire. The grimoire stuff is it's there in the PGM. You know the phylacteries, the circles, the names. You know, it's like it's not Christian. It's just you know through the Middle Ages and 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 Renaissance, the the appropriation of these techniques sort of clandestinely by really Catholic clergy just changed the framework. But this stuff, this is a this is a techné, right? That's what Doctor Skinner calls it um because that's what it refers it refers to itself that way it's Mm -hmm. a skill or a a craft like anything else and there are protocols to any craft so yeah i don't uh, that's not something that i that i um that i really mess around with i'm not i'm not a, a big fan of the solomonic tradition um you know per se but uh I definitely the one really solid thing that I got from from well there are many solid things I got specifically from my training in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn but the first thing is to be I would say overly cautious of this stuff right because at the end of the day we are always going to be at a severe disadvantage when we're working at things on the with things on the other side of the veil because and a lot of people get this twisted they they don't realize like just because it's presenting itself to you in a as a particular image that doesn't mean that that image is in any way consonant with its inherent nature this you know things lie on that on that side and you know uh, things are able to lie on the astral to a, a greater degree than than we are able to lie and hide ourselves on, well, on the well not only that
0: but we lie to ourselves to pretty proficiently as well no one ever thinks no one ever thinks it's going to be them that's taken advantage of by the spirits because they obviously know what's going on uh we all and i've been there we all think that we are immune because we know the stuff but you know we have a, a really great ability to lie to ourselves as well as being lied to so uh it's it's doubly dangerous agreed
2: All right. So Ike, we've covered a lot of ground here and I think it's been a very fruitful conversation. Also shout out to our Elu Cohen out there. We're grateful for your work in context of what we were just talking about. You're needed in the world and we love you. Please keep doing the good job and fighting the good fight. Elu Cohen boys in the house. Um, Ike, what are you doing right now? Like, What's going on with you? How are you working in the world besides your podcast? What projects are you at work on
1: uh so i'm uh speaking of elu cohen i'm i'm working i'm finishing up the audiobook for uh michael osborne's uh translation of uh, martina de pasquale's treatise on the reintegration of beings so that obviously i've spoken about it before on 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 my own podcast and stuff elu cohen has a really special place in my heart and um it's why is that it, it's it's and what is for those who don't know for
2: those people listening to our podcast who aren't familiar with that can you give a little breakdown of that
1: yeah so it's um the elu cohen obviously is is it's was a um i want to say it was a a a sort of derivative uh of a freemasonic sort of uh interpretation by a man named um martina de pasquale who uh was was absolutely brilliant and um obviously he trained louis claude de saint martin and jean-baptiste villermoz um in this specific uh particular system of elect priests of the universe uh he had a very amazingly uh gnostic uh sort of cosmogony and cosmology uh, that it was just uh, i it it when you read the treatise, it's like where was he getting this stuff from? A lot of this stuff wasn't, you know, academically available or or, um, within the reach of, uh, you know, it wasn't in circulation for public reading. So, i mean, and I've got a couple of theories on that, but I won't uh, that I won't get into. But he created essentially this order of exorcists, um, that uh, are tasked with, uh, certain you know uh ritual operations, um. But the overarching uh idea about uh the Elu Cohen is the reintegration of of human beings to um an elevated state, whereas uh, we are we have been denigrated or or, or degraded um, of our of our own volition, and we have kind of stepped down from a place of integration and integrity and now kind of allow ourselves, as we were mentioning earlier to, to be influenced and inhabited and and uh really become enmeshed or mired in this sort of uh the demo- the demonic influence the, uh, that uh that obsessive you know potentially possessive uh element in in fallen creation and and so uh to me that's some of the best you know, some of the greatest work that you, that you can undertake. It's, it's extremely noble. It's extremely necessary right now. And, um, it's just in order that what for me, all this stuff, all of this stuff really exploded everything from my channel, everything that we've talked about, it was all there in latent form. But it, when I read the treatise on the reintegration of beings for the first time, and, you know, unfortunately it wasn't, Uh, michael osborne's translation because i wasn't out yet but when i read it for the first time it was like there's very few times in in i think a person's life when they have such an aha moment and their mind is so physically blown that they just start laughing and there's goosebumps and it was just this unbelievable moment of like i i i see now i understand and uh so um and i think that happened for a lot of reasons i think there's there's some sort of karmic element to it obviously you know i myself have have come to that work and uh it's it's something that i know that the people who do work it um they're some of the best and brightest that i've ever encountered and actually those are the for anyone wondering you know those are the people that i learn from those are the guys that are that are teaching me so so yeah the elo cohen has a has a tremendous place in my heart and I'm super super excited that it it just kind of happened it just worked out so perfectly that Michael heard my podcast with with Gregory Shaw actually and uh and he said uh you know I love the podcast and you've got a great voice for this stuff do you want to do the audiobook and I was just like Amazing. are you kidding me absolutely <laughs> I, would, I would love to do that so so yeah so I'm working on that and I um I'm doing a lot of uh, Masonic uh, speaking. I'm traveling uh, Monday. I'm flying into Phoenix, Arizona to give a talk at Ascension Lodge, uh, number 89 there. And also I'm working on two manuscripts, uh, the first of which is for Tria Prima Press, who have, you know, they published Jamie Paul Lamb's work and P.D. Newman's work. And um, it's basically a, a series of, of it's 12 essays on the Western esoteric traditions Everything that I was kind of talking about earlier, this idea of erudition and insight and kind of this this through line, right? That that kind of inherited or or passed on tradition. That's that's going to be the focus of that book. And then I'm working on another manuscript for Lou Ellen, which has to do with uh combining the things that I've learned. I went to school for for acupuncture and Chinese medicine, and I've worked a lot of uh, Taoist um, inner alchemy and energetic practices so I'm I'm kind of taking I don't it's not my intention to graft you know the Western tradition onto th- those traditions of the East but there's definitely a consonance there. we're definitely utilizing a lot of that stuff in magic that we're just not explicitly taught or if so it's extremely obscure and archaic language um, so I'm working on a system of of practical, uh magic that is is sort of a synthesis of both of those things. That's tentatively calling that etheric magic. And that's, you know that, and obviously just keeping the channel going. And I love talking to people like yourselves. I love doing um I love having these kinds of conversations that we've had today. And I think a lot of that owes to the caliber of of hosts that I've had, so again, I've been a big fan for a long time. It's such a such a joy for me to come on and talk about this stuff with you, you gentlemen today.
2: Oh, we're so glad to have had you on. I mean, it was such a wonderful conversation, and we definitely encourage our listeners to check out your podcast if they haven't heard it because it, it's well worth it. It will be rewarding for them, and you're doing really, really worthwhile. Genuine and imp- important work, and you, you, you can tell your heart is in this, and we appreciate that because we're coming from the same place. Our heart is in this. We're doing this out of a sincere, sincere wish to benefit others and 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 share things. And we can see that you're you're there too, and we want to support you, and we will continue to support you. We love what you're doing. Uh, and uh, just again, people check out Rose Circle Books. Keep your eye on Rose Circle Books because that's where the audiobook is going to be coming out of this. And as you hear, Aika has a very nice speaking voice, so I'm sure it'll be quite pleasant. <laughs> and even before it comes out, if you want to check out Rose Circle Books, there's a lot of very interesting books published specifically on this subject and from within this tradition by the illustrious living legend, Piers Vaughn. If you don't know who that is, you might want to look into who that is.
1: Uh Piers, I love you and I miss you. I'm I'm not sure you're listening, but <laughs> I'll I'll make I'll make my way back uh soon. We,
2: these are these are we these are pro Piers Vaughn podcasters. <laughs> 100%.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: All
0: right, cool man. Great to meet you I. Thanks for uh coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Okay. That was Ike Baker. We really enjoyed having him on the podcast. His podcast is excellent and we definitely support it. We love high quality work like he's doing. And, um, you know, he just keeps putting out interesting things too. So keep an eye on him, you know, stay attuned to his work because he's really doing the, doing the work of informing people and getting the message out there. And we really support it
0: yeah like you said high quality information interesting content and you know he is consistent with his channel you know videos come out pretty regularly so uh, something to definitely keep up with I agree and it was it was a lot of fun it's nice to nice to meet him
2: wonderful person to talk to it was so easy to just have that conversation just so smooth I definitely look forward to maybe a future meeting with him it was a great fun
0: all right, so this week I'm gonna do the book review, and so the one I'm gonna do is just one I had laying around, just some light reading. Proclus's commentary on the Parmenides, and
2: <laughs> yeah, just some light reading.
0: Yeah, I mean it's just you know about 600 pages or so, maybe a little bit more, but um, it's it's a juggernaut of a commentary, and you know all of Proclus's commentaries are excellent. I just happen to have this one handy and it's by uh, well the translation is by glenn morrow and john dillon and it's it's dense but it follows in the footsteps of if you're a fan of uh, the uh De Mysteries by Iamblichus a lot of Proclus's theology seems to to be in that same vein and so you'll be familiar with a lot of the ideas if you're familiar with that book by Iamblichus but this book in particular it's one that can last you a lifetime, really. It goes through the seven books of the Parmenides, and it's great because at the beginning of each book, there is a introduction slash a little bit of a commentary by the translators on what Proclus is talking about, what he's getting at, and some of the ideas. And then you have the um, portions of the Parmenides and then Proclus's commentary on that. So you've got really two commentaries going on. Um, and it's helpful because you've got the modern kind of interpretation of, of Proclus who can be kind of uh, dense as well. So um, super interesting. The Parmenides is kind of the culmination of the dialogues. I think as as far as um, the advancement of, of, of Plato's ideas um, and it is advanced. It's, it's, not light reading. And it's something that you should probably, you know, you should probably familiar yourself, familiarize yourself with the earlier dialogues before you jump into this, but it is worth it. It covers a lot of the ideas such as the henads and monads. Um, A lot of it has to do with the uh, kind of trying to figure out how there is a unity, but there's also a multiplicity and it is mathematical. I mean, the, the, Neoplatonists were were known for this kind of really mathematical review of of theories um, in order to like hyperlogically ascertain the most accurate explanations. Um, and so this is definitely no different. And it's it's a wild ride if you're able to stick through the whole thing. But it's something I I come back to quite frequently um, just to kind of reintroduce myself to some of these ideas and refresh. So, uh, Proclus's commentary on Plato's Parmenides, translated by Glenn Morrow and John Dillon. This is through Princeton University Press.
2: I'm a big fan of Proclus's Elements of Theology.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. That would be another one.
2: He's, like you said, he's just so sy- systematic, so clear, so thorough in his explication it's Mm -hmm. like he doesn't leave a stone unturned in the way that he examines the the material it's pretty incredible in my opinion
0: yeah it's very incredible so highly recommend all Proclus's work if you are interested in platonism and generally neoplaton platonism specifically
2: yeah for sure and with that you can find us in all of the usual places podcast places, YouTube places, place, place, places, places where you find places and places and follow us, support us. If you want to keep hearing this, you know, just spread the word and uh, we're grateful for all of our listeners and we wish you a wonderful week, month and year.
0: See you in the next episode.